You're listening to audio from Community Bible Church in Savannah, Georgia. For more information, go to cbcsavannah.com. Because um, it's, you know, some, you know, I was talking to people earlier. It's been a rough week around the world, whether it's hurricanes, tyrants, uh, threat making war threats, I, all these, it's just a chaotic world. And, and look, I, you know, people, how's your week? My, my week stunk. How about, how about yours? I mean, I, that's transparency. I was hoping that Jesus come back yesterday. I was all convinced, right? And I mean, <laughs> Fox News told me so. Jesus may have said no one knows, but surely Fox News knows, right? So um, if ever someone says they know when Jesus is coming back, just call them an idiot and walk away. You have my permission because they don't know. Only Jesus knows. Um, so, but you know what? Despite where you are, uh, what's up, what's down. We had a family last night. One of our families got in a bad car accident on, on 17 in the ER, got rushed. They're fine, praise God. But despite that, here in the power of Christ, we stand. Amen, church. So good stuff. Um, let me pray and we'll jump in to our text for this, for this morning. Jesus, we stand in the power of of you who have laid down your life for us. You are the rock. You are the stone which was rejected by men, but you have become the chief cornerstone, a rock of stumbling and of offense, but yet the foundation for everything that we hold fast to. We know based on the resurrection that you are alive and you are coming again and we have hope. And so I stand in that this morning. I stand hurt, I stand broken, I stand tired but I stand strong in you, even when I'm weak, and I am weak. And I want to boast in my weakness, Lord, so that you are made strong, that you are seen as glorious. And as we come to the Scripture, the Holy Scripture, how privileged we are to have it, to see it in our own language, to know your very words. And you said it is inspired by you, it is breathed out so, so that we may be adequate and equipped for every good work. And so I just pray that through the study of Scripture that you would make us smarter, Lord. It's not, we don't want information. We want transformation that you would make us through the Scriptures and by your Spirit more like Jesus. Please. Um, we pray for, for our church. We pray for our country. Lord, all these things you command us to pray for. We, we just pray that we would be the light of the world that you have called us to be despite the darknesses out there, that, and that we would shine bright, letting our works be seen by men so that they may glorify you. That's what our, our cry is. That's my cry right now for the preaching of your word is, be glorified, Lord Jesus. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Thanks, you guys. Have a seat. We're going to be in Luke 16. Um, if you're using a little bookmarks, we're gonna, I guess we need to print some new ones up. Irma kind of threw our schedule off a little bit. So we're one week late on those, obviously. We're in Luke 16. And what I told you as we kind of wrap the book up, I'm going to be hitting kind of high points of every chapter. So we're not going to look at the entire chapter today, but we're going to look at kind of the big, big picture of what this was about. Um, one of the most famous kind of stories in the last couple hundred years, one that has been adapted numerous times over, is Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, right? And I mean, we got all sorts of versions. We got the, the classic George C. Scott, you know, you know, Patton version. You got the uh, Patrick Stewart, 
which to me is always Jean-Luc Picard, so I, you know, not fitting for him to be, every, he needs to be on the Enterprise, not on, you know, in A Christmas Carol, but you got the Muppets version, right? That's what I grew up with, with Sir Michael Caine as, as Ebenezer Scrooge. You have the Disney version, which is a great version. You got the Bill Murray Scrooge version, right? And everyone, you know, loves that kind of, all, and why? Because it's such a great story. And, and you know the story that Ebenezer Scrooge, this miserly old grumpy dude, hates everything including Christmas. And so one evening he's in his house and he has a visit from his old partner, Jacob Bob Marley. Right? I've said, I say Bob back and forth. So if I say Bob, you know who I'm talking about. But Jacob Marley, his old partner says, if you do not change your ways, Ebenezer, that you will be like me enchained, enslaved. And he doesn't believe him. And so he sends three ghosts, the ghosts of Christmas past, present and future. And you know the story. God blesses everyone. Let's have turkey. Everyone is happy, right? That's, that's the story. If you haven't seen it, I'm sorry, I blew the ending for you, but it's like 200 years old, y'all, okay? But point being, someone comes back from the grave to warn him. And that idea is really very similar to our text this morning. That someone, a Jacob Marley type person, would come back and speak from the grave. And if he could do so, what would he say? This is one of only two places in all the Bible that I, that I can see. Maybe I forgot one. Where someone comes from the afterlife back to say something. There's one in the Old Testament where King Saul tries to talk to Samuel. And then this is the only other one that I can find. Or someone speaks from the grave. And if someone could speak from the grave, what would they say? That's what we're going to talk about today. Right? And, and I realize in this room and in the world, there's all sorts of different views of what happens. To the most important question, what happens to you after you die? That's a big question, right? And so you have those that would be in what we call the naturalist camp where, where you don't have a soul. There's no, there's no, you know, invisible kind of part to you. Once you die, it's donezo. It's just, you, you, it's over. Right? It's just Nothing. Then you got the universalists that just basically teach all roads somehow wind and lead to heaven for the most part. You know, we, except for Hitler and the bad, really bad people, but all roads, you know, kind of get there somehow. That's one view. Reincarnation, right? That you just kind of, you know, if you, you had a good life, then you get to go up and you next, you know, maybe you get to be a Labrador next time. And if you're bad, oh, you know, I gotta be a, I gotta be a poodle, you know, or whatever, you know, you just kind of, you work your way up the karmic chart until finally you, you kind of get enlightened. You have those called annihilationists that believe that, okay, uh, you know, Christians go to be with Jesus and everyone else kind of ceases to exist, that you just are destroyed and then that's kind of it. That's, that's a view. You have uh, some that hold to a view of, of purgatory, right? Where um, after you die, you go and you kind of sit in this like purgatory jail cell. It's kind of like, you know, Monopoly. You know, you stay there, get out of jail, and finally you can roll doubles and you get out after a couple hundred years or whatever, right? That's one view. Not in the Bible, but that's a view, right? So you get all the different views. And here's the thing. What we as Christians want to do is say, what does Jesus say? I don't, I don't really care what some guy with a PhD, I don't care what so-and-so and, and the Dolly whoever or, or the whatever, some religious leader. Who, what does Jesus say? Because Jesus talked about what's next more than any other person in all the Bible, okay? He just did, right? You could put all, you know, Genesis, the whole Old Testament and even the rest of the New Testament after the Gospels. Jesus spoke of what's to come more than any other author. So we want to go to him because who are you going to believe? Some PhD from whatever university or the creator of the universe? 
So we're going to go with the creator, right, and see what he says, all right? And, and what we're going to talk about, y'all, it's, it's, it's heavy. I, this, I mean, I knew about this sermon when we started this series in Luke back in, what month is it now? I don't even remember. Whenever we started this book, back last August or whatever. But you know what? It, it's here. I'm going to teach it because I love you. And if I, if I don't teach it, then you need to fire me because, you know, Jesus calls me to talk to you and tell you what he says. And so we're going to look at today. It's heavy, but it's not hard to understand. So Luke chapter 16, we're going to look at verses 14 to 31. And this, this story, y'all, it's perfect for where we've been because we saw a couple weeks ago that Jesus has been inviting people to the kingdom. And, and he says it's like a feast. It's like this huge celebration that lasts forever. And so he says, I want you to go out in the highways and the byways. And I want you to gather everybody. And, and some people that said they were going are not really going. And so he's like, go get everybody. I want everyone at my party. I want everyone at my feast. Everyone, even in the gutters, everyone, doesn't matter where they've been, bring them in. And last week, J- David taught so well that, he's, that's, that even the worst sinner is invited which made the Pharisees who were these religious leaders, these, these kind of pastors of their day, furious because they hated sinful people. They thought they were so good. And Jesus says, that's why I came. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And it drove them nuts. And it's at the heart of the theme of the book that we've been talking about, fall and rising, where those who think they're good are actually not. And those who are humble are actually on the rise. And those guys are falling and these guys are rising. Why? Because that's why Jesus came, that you be a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to some. And we're going to see it today. And no more, no more than, than this passage, probably. And Jesus in the first pa- part of the passage, he, he, taught, he told a parable. The Pharisees love money, bottom line. They say they love God, they really love money. So Jesus' parables both revolve around a rich man. And so in the first one, he tells a parable about this, this steward who uses his master's resources shrewdly to plan for the future. And he doesn't compliment him on his use of the money, but his shrewdness. And the idea there is you ought to plan now for the future, right? And then he, he says this, this, this statement as we move to the next one. He says, the Pharisees who are lovers of money, they love the money, okay? It's very obvious, they were hearing these things and they were ridiculing. Now they're going out of their way to mock Jesus. Before they're just kind of secretly mumbling. Now they're in the middle of the sermon like, ha wrong oh Jesus. And they're mocking him and they're making obnoxious comments and they're disturbing. They are now moving a little bit more public with this opposition because he's been hammering their love of money. And he says, hey, you are the ones who justify yourself before men. You look real religious, you fast, you pray, you tithe, you wear the fancy outfits, you raise your hand during singing, you go to community group, you do Bible study, blah, blah, blah. You have all the externals, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Y'all love money, you pretend you love me, you're liars, God's not fooled. The law and the prophets were until John. See, they thought they kept the law. He's, so he's saying, hey, the law is from like Genesis all the way to John the Baptist, who, by the way, you didn't like either. And now the good news of the kingdom is preached. Don't you, don't you love that phrase, good news? It's just the word gospel. I mean, in a bad time, don't you need good news? He says, the good news, I bring the good news now. I preach, I preach the good news of the kingdom. And everyone is trying to get in. Everyone's forcing his way in. They're eager to get in. The idea is they're just kind of cramming to get in the kingdom. Why? Because you Pharisees have been actually keeping people out. And I'm bringing people in. 
right? Because the law is about me. He says, it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than from one dot of law to become void. This law that you say you love, Pharisees, that whole thing, all those books, all those books are about me. From Genesis to Malachi, I mean, even the way that Ethan opens the service, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Why were there sacrifices? Why were there a tabernacle? It all points to Jesus. He's like, it's about me. The kingdom, right? And y'all are missing it. And then he has this random verse and it seems so out of place. All of a sudden he jumps into divorce. You're like, what, what is that? Did Luke just need like, an, I need an 18. I need a verse 18. What should I put? Oh, I'll just throw this out. Copy and paste. No. It says, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. He who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. How does that even relate anything to what he's been talking about? He's just giving an example of the law and how they were breaking it and how the intent of the law was different from what they were doing. See, they would say, yeah, divorce bad. Mmm, mmm, divorce bad. But what they would do so that they could justify themselves is they would make all these little clauses, right? They just make stuff up. Yeah, divorce is bad. But if your wife doesn't cook well, you can divorce her. And it's legal. And you can read these things in the Mishnah, in the Talmud. All these, these different Pharisees had different views. Well, if she if she's, it doesn't please you and blah, 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 you can divorce her. And if you don't, it, all these exception clauses. And he's saying, you got, this is the law. God made them male and female from the beginning. What God brought together, let no man separate. And the only two options in the New Testament that divorce exception clauses are for adultery and non-Christian abandonment. And we'll get into those in the spring because we're going to do a series on marriage. But he says, you guys, the intent of the law is one man, one woman for life. And all you could do is justify yourself. Oh, if she can't cook. Oh, if she can't this, then I can do it. He said, this, he's just showing them how they're breaking the very thing they think they're keeping. Because they, they think their righteousness is, is great. And then he tells this story. This Jacob Marley type story. And there's two guys in it. And one of them's them and one of them's the other people. And for those of you familiar with the Bible, you've, you've, you've heard this probably before. Um, it's a parable. There's some debate for some that some people think it's, it's not a parable, it's a story. I would argue that it is a parable because it has the same structure as the first parable in, in the beginning of 16. And, and the guy that's named, most people say, oh, it's not a parable, it's a real story because there's a guy named in it. Well, there's a guy named in it because there's a reason why Jesus names it. And I'll explain that when we get there. So he's telling a parable about their situation to a bunch of people that love money and think that God loves money and is impressed with money. So let's jump into it. Verse 16. This is the heart of our passage. I'm sorry, verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. That's a great word, isn't it? Sumptuously. Makes you hungry, especially since you came to late service, right? But he's, this guy is filthy, stinking rich, right? He's not just doing well. He is loaded. We know that because he's dressed in purple, Right, some of you are like, well, well, I have a purple shirt. I went to Target last week and got a purple shirt. Okay, you gotta understand. In that day, there was no purple shirt at Target. The only way to get purple anything was there was a certain little snail and a certain little mollusk and you had to like crush this poor little snail. Squish, how mean is that, right? But you had, and you could get a small amount of purple dye out of it, very small. So in order for you to wear an outfit that was purple, you got to kill a lot of little snails, a lot of expensive little snails and little mollusks uh, to get just a little bit of purple. So only the filthy rich would have enough expendable income to get anything purple. Go calves, right? Right? Sorry, got a kid at Calvary, right? Here we go. 
So, so he's, ri- and then even his undergarments, it says he's dressed in, in linen, and that's, that's a reference to that which goes under the purple. All right, this is his drawers. He's wearing Peter Millar, or whatever you want to say. He's wearing the finest of the finest drawers. Okay? The guy's loaded, and then he's feasting sumptuously. That means he's throwing outlandish parties, and everyone knows it. And it's not just like every Friday night. It's not like, hey, come over. Today we get to watch the Falcons. It's every day is like a feast. It's the Golden Corral Buffet every day. That's what he does. All right, so, and he, and he has a gate outside his house. It's so grand. He's got this compound. He is loaded. And the Pharisees would have been like, that's who I want to be. That's who the blessed person is. God must have blessed him, right? That's their mind. And that's what he wants them to think, okay? He's drawing them in so that they think this is the blessed person. God blesses the people who are rich and their charmed life. That's them. So then now there's the second guy. At his gate was laid. And the word for laid there is actually a word for like throw. Like just kind of like throw him over. Was laid a poor man named Lazarus, okay? We got a rich man, we got a poor man. And he is covered in sores. He's got these open pussy ulcers that are seeping and leaking and he stinks and he's only got one set of clothes and he's just kind of crashing outside this guy's gate and he is not feasting sumptuously he is starving so much so that he desires to be fed with the 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 trash I mean you take the trash out and you know you, you put some like meat in there and two days later what is it it's got nasty maggots and it smells and you're like oh you're gagging trying to take it out This guy is so hungry, that is attractive to him. He wants what you would gag at, right? And he's in agony. And and moreover, the text is kind of like, and on top of all that, even the dogs came and licked him. And some of you like animal lovers, and I'm an animal lover, but you're like, oh, isn't that sweet? At least the dogs like him. That's not what it's saying. Some of you kiss your dog in your mouth and it's gross and people that don't do that think it's gross, just so you know, because we know what dogs do to other dogs. They sniff, okay? So don't let your dog kiss you unless you brush his teeth. Um, But these are not friendly little like Labradors and Labradoodles and like, oh, come over here and kiss me. These are nasty vermin. They're like rats. If you've been to a third world country, some of you have, you know exactly the dog I'm talking about. Because you'll be, I've been, in the, I've been in the Ukraine, I've been in Africa, I've been in Central America, and you'll see this dog, and I love dogs. You'll see this dog, you'll be like, that is the nastiest thing I've ever seen in my life. That's the type of dog we're talking about. They're vermin. And this guy's in such bad shape that he either doesn't have the energy to fight them off so they just come up and lick the nasty sores. Or maybe that's even just like the only comfort and relief he has. Can you see how opposite these men are in their situation, right? That's the point. Filthy, rich, and poor. And the irony of the story, one of the ironies is this. His name is Lazarus, which means, it's, it's the Hebrew name Eleazar, which means God has helped. So what, what Jesus is doing here is the Pharisees think This guy over here is the one God has helped because he's rich. But when Jesus is throwing a a, a big curveball and God has helped is the guy who's laying at the gate, all sores, all starving. And the Pharisees would be like, yeah, right, God has helped. Give me a break. 
And every time the rich man would walk out of his house and see that man sitting at his gate, because he would see him every time, he would almost scoff. <laughs> hey, God has helped. And he think, God has helped me. Because look at this. See, this is where the story, this is why Jesus is the master storyteller. Right? And so what happens is they both die. The great equalizer. The poor man died and the rich man died. Both of them die. Now the rich man, it says, was buried. So he gets this big funeral with a big gravestone and everyone comes and cries and isn't it sad? And he was such a good dude and all who's going to get his stuff. The poor man died. It doesn't mention anything of a burial. Maybe he's thrown in the trash heap. Maybe he gets a common grave. But there's where the difference begins. Because the poor man is carried by the angels to Abraham's side. Some of your translations say bosom, which just, just means side. And so remember, when we looked at heaven and the heavenly feast a few weeks ago, you got the host at the head of the table. And what was the most honored position at the table? At the side of the master, right? So what, here's what's going on. You have this, this man who was at the gate longing to be filled with garbage, getting licked by dogs, hungry, gross. He is picked up and he is put right next to one of the rock stars of the Old Testament, Abraham. He's at the place of honor. He goes from a place of shame to a place of honor, right? And where's the rich man? He's buried and he's in Hades in torment. He's in hell. And he lifts his eyes. And here, again, here's, here's the, the, the kind of great reversal. Lazarus would sit there and smell the smells of the feasts and he'd see the banquets through the gates and he would long just to get the trash. He got to see all that feasting. Now, the rich man sees a feast and he sees Abraham and Lazarus and he can't be part of it. It's a great reversal, right? And so he cries out, Father Abraham, notice he's religious. <coughs> Excuse me. He knows his, his Old Testament terminology. He's a, he's, a, he's a religious man. Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus. Notice his view of Lazarus in the afterlife has not changed. He still sees him as a servant. He still see, sees him as subservient. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger and cool in water and cool my tongue. He's in such anguish that just a drop of water on his tongue will bring some relief. Doesn't ask for a swimming pool. Doesn't ask for a, a, a gallon of water. Just, just a drop. For I'm in anguish in this flame. Right? And then Abraham, with, with notice the gentleness that Jesus brings this story out. Child. There's a tenderness there. Child, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things. And Lazarus, bad things. But now he is comforted and you are in anguish. You, rich man, Put your hope in all this and all that that brought. And now you are getting what you put your hope in. And Lazarus put his hope in something beyond. And so he is being comforted. The great reversal. And, and besides, he says, you can't do it. There's, it's impossible. Lazarus cannot go to you. You cannot go to him. There is a great chasm. Notice it's not just a chasm. There is a great chasm that has been fixed in order for those who would, who would pass from here to there not be, may, may not be able and none may cross. It is impossible. You are there. We are here. That's the end of the story. And you can imagine just the hopelessness of that statement. Forever separated. And this is where the Jacob Marley piece 
comes into play now, right? This is where the voice from the grave, he says this, then I beg you, Father Abraham, send him. He still wants him to be a servant. Send him to my father's house. Why? I have five brothers so that he may warn them lest they also come to this place of torment. Father Abraham, send them to my brothers. And, and you often hear when, when we talk about, you know, people talk about heaven and hell and they, they view hell as this kind of far side comic, right? Or you have the view that even Mark Twain had, you know, 100 years ago. And the view hasn't changed. That he, he, he would say, and he's quoted it saying, that I want to go to heaven for the climate and hell for the society. And you hear that, I'm going to party with my friends in hell. I'm, it's going to be great, we'll go, you know, whatever. The only voice we ever hear from, from hell says, I don't want anybody coming here. And it's not a party. There's no fun. It's not a celebration. Right? And so Abraham says, well, they have Moses and they have the prophets. Let them listen to them. You don't, they don't need someone to go back from the grave. They don't need a Bob Marley. See, I did it. They don't need a Jacob Marley. They have Moses. They, they have everything they need to know about the love of God and the grace of God and the hope of God from Moses and the prophets. All they have to do is open it up and it's right there in front of them. Right? And this speaks hugely, y'all, to the sufficiency of Scripture. Where Romans 1 teaches us that, that everything we need to know about God is seen. You just go outside. Yesterday, my family and I, we were out kayaking out on one of the rivers. And, and my wife made this great comment. She's sitting behind and I'm sit, she's sitting in front of me. She said, just look at God's great creation. I'm thinking, yes, it's obvious to me. God has revealed himself in creation and he's given us a conscience and he's given us common graces so that when we respond to that, he gives us even more specific revelation. But the Old Testament, the New Testament, all these things point to we know there is God. And he says, all he has to do is, is look. And he says, no. He says, no, Father. If someone goes to him, notice he's telling Abraham no. Even in the afterlife, he's still got this arrogance and this almond charge. He's telling the father of the faith no, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And what he's saying, honestly, is this. They need someone to scare them. They need, they need, they need Jacob Marley. They need someone to go back and scare them into the kingdom. And you've, and you've all heard before. People that, that are all, you know, turn and burn, baby. Better turn and burn. Right? And, and, there's, and, and there's something that seems almost manipulative about that, trying to scare people so that they believe. And, and, and you think that, that feels wrong a little bit. And Jesus would agree with you, actually. Because he says, no, they, they, they don't need to be scared. You don't need judgment house. You don't need to scare them. When you read the sermons of Jesus, he is not ashamed of heaven or hell, but he doesn't just say, you better, you better do this or you're donezo because I'm the king. You better serve me or else. You never see that. Does he warn? Yes. But he always preaches the good news of the kingdom, hope that is found in forgiveness of sins in him. You see that throughout. Even Paul, the apostle, that Christ sent me to preach the gospel. That the gospel is the power of salvation for all who believe. That's what, that was what the message is. It's not turn or burn. Because if you're converted because you're scared or fearful or you saw a miracle, that, that's not the motivation that, that God is looking for, those who love their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. I can remember as a kid, y'all, I grew up in a church. I wasn't a Christian. I was 22, 23 years old. But I think I prayed inviting Jesus into my heart 
about 37 times a week. Because I, I was, and I was just, I just covered my bases. Well, I don't know if I meant it on Monday, so I'm going to do it again. I was functioning completely out of fear. Don't want to go to hell. Don't want to this. Don't want to miss the rapture, right? Go to the rapture movie and see the whole, oh, I'm going to get left behind. I, I'm just scared to death my entire life. That's, that's not this, right? And so he says, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced by someone who rises from the dead. That's it. Moses and the prophets are enough. They don't need a miracle. They don't need someone coming back. They don't need Jacob Marley. They have enough. And, and this is where it, Jesus is exactly right. He's foreshadowing what's going on. Because what happens literally probably a couple weeks later is that Jesus raises a guy from the dead, John chapter 11. He's been dead four days, right? And what is his name, by the way? Lazarus. You think there's any coincidence in that? No coincidences. And what happens after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead? And all these Pharisees and all these people literally saw him in the grave for four days, not hiding. They saw that he was dead and he comes out of the grave. You would think that they would say, OMG. We have a guy who can reverse the curse of death. We should listen to him. That's what you think would happen. But what do they say? OMG, people are starting to follow him. We better kill him. After they saw the very thing that Jesus says, if they see a guy raised from the dead, it doesn't matter. It, was, it just happened. And not only that, Six months after this, Jesus is going to go to the cross and he is going to go into the grave and he's going to come out of the grave and no one can explain it and the Pharisees can't explain it and they can't find his body and they're trying to figure it out and they even go to the apostles after Jesus ascends back into heaven recognizing that they had been with Jesus and they have no answer for it. So what do they try to do? Shh. See, the issue is not evidence. It's, it's not Right? The issue is not, we don't, oh, we just need to have a few more answers to your questions and then, no, no, no. Moses and the prophets are enough. The power of the word of God is enough to draw you. The issue is this. John 3, 16 says, God so loved the world, he gave his only son. Whoever believes should not perish and have eternal life. God did not send his son to condemn the world, but the world might be saved. And then in verse 18 and 19, he says, Jesus is saying this, whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the son of God. And notice what he says next. This is the judgment. Light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Why do people not believe? It's not because of evidence. It's because they love sin. I know because I spent 23 years of my life loving my sin and not wanting to come to Jesus. And praise God, he rescued me from that, right? That, that's the issue. And the irony... Here's the irony of the parable, right? This is where Jesus is the master storyteller, y'all. He says, Jacob Marley, you don't get to be Jacob Marley. There's going to be no Jacob Marley going back to your brothers, right? The irony is, for, for him, there is not. But for the reader of this parable, there is. Because this man is your Jacob Marley. He is speaking from the grave. He is warning the very thing that he wanted his brothers to hear, you get to hear. He is talking from the grave. Right? He is warning from the grave. That's the irony of the whole parable. And if he could talk to us, what would he say? Let me give you two things, and then we'll give you some applications. Just two simple things. And y'all, look, I know this is heavy. 
I, I do. If, 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 if I could skip the hard stuff, I would. But then you, you should fire me because I'm a false teacher. I tell you this because, because Jesus wants me to. But here's what, here's what Jacob Marley would tell you. Here, if he could tell you anything, here's what he would say. Number one, heaven and hell are real. Jesus teaches more on heaven and hell than anybody else in Scripture, bar none. So if it's not real, then Jesus is a liar. And if Jesus is a liar, then what are we doing here? You're wasting your time. Because if he's a liar, he's not God. If he's not God, he's not a savior. If he's not a savior, we're all lost. We can say we don't like something and we can say, you know, we don't understand something. But just because you don't like it does not make it true. And just because some guy with fancy letters after his name says that's not true and went to some fancy school with some divinity school says that's not true. You know, 70% of religious faculty deny the doctrine of hell. 70%. I'm thinking, am I going to go with Jesus or religious faculty? Right. And I wish it wasn't true. Can I be honest? This is one of those doctrines that I wish was not in the Bible. If I could erase it, I would. But I can't because it's the Word of God. But the reason Jesus speaks so much on the reality of it, y'all, is because He doesn't want people to go. Hell was not even created for people. It was created for the devil and his angels and their rebellion. Right? God does not delight in the death of the wicked. That he doesn't wish for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. That, that's his heart. That's why he sends men like me up here to preach hard stuff. Because he loves you and he cares for you. And is there a question? Do I have questions about it? Oh, I have tons of questions. Do you? I mean, we got people ask all questions all the time. What about this? What about this? Like, what about babies? What, what does God do about babies? I think, I'm pretty sure based on scripture, that all babies go to heaven. Not because they're innocent, but because of God's grace. And I can argue from the scripture. And if you want to talk about that, I will. But I'm convinced of that. What about those who don't hear? What about this? What about that? All sorts of good questions. But don't let all your questions fog the very simple truth that there is an eternity and everyone will spend eternity even heather and hell. That's, that's, that's the only options, right? Second thing I think that he would tell us this morning is that hell is horrible because he tells us from the parable. And the scripture has all sorts of imagery, lake of fire, Gehenna, which was this trash heap outside Jerusalem. It talks about being a place of suffering and permanent suffering of conscious suffering it's called the second death away from the presence of the Lord there's no second chance right he's appointed for men to die once and then comes judgment we see all these images in Revelation and, in, and even in Jesus's parables right it's not a party it's outer darkness it is eternal and I know the doctrine of hell seems harsh but it seems harsh because, y'all, we do not grasp the, the, huge, the huge impact of sin. We're like, yeah, you know, yeah, Hitler deserves to go. But your average Joe, really? This guy didn't do any major sin in this text, did he? He wasn't a murderer. He wasn't a this. He wasn't a that. He, his biggest thing we could say is he loved money and he ignored his neighbor. How many of us ignore our neighbor and love money? It's, but all sin is trampling on the glory of God and God is so holy and he is so infinite and he is so just that we, he has to punish sin. 
He can't, he can't just say, oh, well, you know, I'm, I, I'm love. And so I, no, he is love, but he is holy and he is righteous. So he has to punish sin. That's why Jesus sent us in the byways and the highways. Thank God that he rescued me from the gutters. How many of you were rescued from the gutter? Amen. Let me be honest. All of us. Right? So it's, it's his grace. My point is, it's not your job to say who's in his out. It's your job is to preach the gospel. Point number two is this. Our life here matters. This is just a reminder that our life here matters. That what you do here with Jesus echoes forever. You may get 80, 100 years. The investment you make here is an eternal investment. And, and remember that this guy is, he finds himself in Hades not because he was rich. Right? The richest guy in the Old Testament was who? Father Abraham. He's the daddy warbucks of the Old Testament and he's sitting in the kingdom. So having money has nothing to do with it. The guy's problem is he put his hope in his money and it was showing how he treated people. He walks by a guy who he knows his name every day and all he can say was, hey Lazarus, you want a ham sandwich? I got plenty. He does none of that. And his ignoring of people shows that he does not really love God. Church, the way you treat people will really tell you what you really believe about God. If you love God, you cannot walk by the guy who stinks with sores on and not give him a ham sandwich. You just can't. The way you treat people is a reflection of how you love God. It's just the way it is. If I love God, I love people. I can't say I love people but I don't love God. I can't say I love God and I don't love people. They come together. You say, well, this person hurt me. Or I've been hurt. I've been bitter. Let me just tell you something. This is the beauty of the gospel. No one will ever hurt you as much as you hurt Jesus. You will never have to forgive anybody as much as you've been forgiven by Jesus. Do you know that? And so your life matters. So who are the people at your gate? That's what you got to ask. This is why God says, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father. Your life matters, y'all. It just does. And let me tell you, it is a powerful thing when you go out and love God and love other people. Now, look, everyone expects me to do it because I'm pastor guy, which is why when I go out, I try not to be looking like pastor guy. So I wear headbands and Star Wars t-shirts and vans. Right? And so they're like, you're the pastor? I'm like, no. <laughs> because they expect me to be holy until they come to my house and my kids will tell you that I'm not. What is more powerful than Christian collar guy is when you go out to Gulfstream and Savannah Arts Academy and downtown at that shop on Broughton Street and out there in Richmond Hill and working at Applebee's and working wherever. When you love God and you love other people, now that people stand back and be like, whoa, he's cutting his lawns and he is ref he's reflecting the glory of God. He's kind and he's doing a good job. Whoa. That is a powerful thing. It ain't powerful for me. They expect me to be Bible answer man. When you do it, whoa, that's what, that's what the church is about. That's what, that's what the Great Commission is about. There's an urgency to it. Go! All right, and I heard this great quote by Rick Warren this week uh, on the, you know, little 60-second clips on 88.1. And he, and he was saying, you know, people are always like, well, you're praying for their lost so-and-so and praying for the lost so-and-so. And, 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 and I'm kind of paraphrasing, but his idea was, great! You're praying for someone to tell them, go! You're in their lives. 
right? We all want, we pray, oh, pray for this person, and we expect it like to be like a, a plane with a sign at the football game that says, John 3, 16, believe in me. Or he's going to write it in the stars. He has given, he sent you. You're better than everyone. You have a story. We're just so timid. He says, I got, you're invited to the feast. Bring all your friends. That's what the church is about, y'all. That's what we do. There's urgency. This is why we invest money in, in the Word of God while we're translating the Bible and putting it in this, this West China, uh, this one city in West China that they don't have a, a West China, they don't have a Bible. This is why we're pouring thousands of dollars so that they get a Bible. Why? Because the sufficiency of Scripture, Moses and the prophets will point them to God. That's why we put so much money invested in that. It's why we invest out there because we believe it, right? It's a powerful thing, right? Your life matters. Can't walk by Lazarus at the gate. And here's the last thing, and my favorite, is that Christians rejoice. Why? Because you're going to the party. You've been, invi- you've been invited to the party, right? Everyone got their invite in the mail, right? You've been invited. You're like, I didn't get it. Here it is. Come to the party. You're a sinner. Jesus died for your sin so that you could go to the party. All you have to do is turn from your sin and put your faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. You've been invited. I just invited you, right? If you're going to the party, what's that? The eternal party, not just like, oh, it's going to be a fun. The everlasting, never cry ever again, never sick ever again, never pain ever again, joy forever and ever and ever and ever. Everything the next morning is beautiful. All the colors are brighter. All the food tastes better. The fellowship is amazing. Georgia always wins. (laughs) Yeah, I got some booze there. You're not going to heaven. That's the problem, right? (laughs) If you're going there and that's where we're headed, what is it now? look like 80 years even of suffering is nothing and 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 I was thinking about this week this is a word for me maybe this is just me but I thought about this if that's the future of the church then why is the church always so miserable and why are we fighting and critical and grumbling and complaining why are we like that I think it breaks the heart of God. He's looking down and saying, you're going to my party and all you can do is complain and grumble and be mad. Stay home. He doesn't really say stay home, but I'm thinking when my kids and I try to bless them and they are all grumbling and complaining, I'm like, fine, you go somewhere else. I don't really say that, but I think it sometimes. But why would we not be just joyful? I don't know. I don't know why we wouldn't I don't have any answer because we should be. So let's act like we're going to the feast. Let's invite people to the feast. Let's bring them along with me. Let's beg them on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. Right? Because there is a heaven and a hell. Hell's horrible. God doesn't want you to go there. If you got, look, if you got questions about any of this, grab a pastor, email us, put a connect card. We'd love to talk with you. Right? There's an urgency to this and Fox News is wrong Jesus is not coming back tomorrow probably but he will one day or you'll be taken home with him so we want to be ready but we want to be rejoicing so why don't you stand with me and we'll worship and we'll rejoice and we will survey we will survey the wondrous cross in which the prince of glory died so that we may have life